This week we saw major decisions from some of the world's largest central banks, a continued focus on the relationship between the labor market and inflation, and the latest round of corporate earnings. This is The Markets. Hi, I'm Sam Grobart. Today, I'm joined by Gurpreet Gill, a macro strategist in the fixed income team at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Gurpreet, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me on. This week, we had some central bank action or inaction, as it may have been the case. While the Bank of Japan certainly loosened its yield curve control policy, the U.S. Fed left interest rates unchanged, as did the Bank of England. What's your read on these different decisions? As you mentioned, of the major central banks that convened in recent days, the Bank of Japan was certainly the more active one. It didn't change its policy rate, but it did increase the flexibility of its yield curve control program. So yields can rise above 1%. What was also interesting from the Bank of Japan was that it revised higher its 2024 inflation projection quite considerably from 1.9% to 2.8%. And that in some ways to us is a hint that the Bank of Japan is preparing to exit its negative interest rate policy. Japan is experiencing this unfamiliar but much welcomed cycle of rising prices and rising wages. And that in our view is no longer warranting a negative policy rate. If I can just interrupt you for a quick second there, what begins to happen if and when Japan moves away from this negative yield posture? Well, first of all, I'd say that markets are forward-looking agents. And so really the market response is going to be felt even before the Bank of Japan actually delivers that departure from negative interest rates. But the short answer is that it is yet another upward impetus on global bond yields. And so the, the rise in Japanese government bond yields would likely have some spillover to other major markets. The other thing to take into consideration is the extent to which positive bond yields in Japan leads Japanese investors to repatriate capital back home. And that will have implications for other fixed income assets that have benefited from Japanese demand in recent years. So what has been the market's reaction to the U.S.'s Fed's decision to stand put? I guess what was interesting this week is that that actually did lead to action in U.S. Treasuries. Um, U.S. Treasuries had their best day since March on the day of the Fed meeting. Now, that is partly in response to no action at the Fed, but also at the margin, a dovish interpretation of the Fed acknowledging that tighter financial conditions are doing some of the work. But it was also in response to weak activity data that we got at the Treasury refunding announcement. So a bit of all of those factors supported Treasuries on the day of the Fed meeting. As we sit here today, we're awaiting the U.S. Department of Labor's Friday announcement of non-farm payrolls. The last time it did this, it surprised everyone with a gain of 336,000 jobs, which was far above estimates. October is expected to be far lower. What have you been observing in labor markets so far? I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that the U.S. labor market is still very healthy. Around 2.4 million jobs have been created so far this year. The pace of job creation has come down from what we saw last year, but it is still firmer than what we saw in 2019 pre-pandemic. And the big aim for policymakers is to bring labor demand and labor supply into better balance so that wages are rising at a pace that is compatible with 2% inflation. What has been noteworthy this year is that the labor market has been rebalancing despite growth being exceptionally strong. 
And so the gap between available jobs and available workers has narrowed from a peak of around 6 million to 2.5 million. And, and that's a level that is considered to be consistent with stable inflation and sustainable wage growth. Does that mean that the rebalancing is having the intended effect on inflation that we all hope it does? So that is what we are on the lookout for. There is evidence of disinflation in the US, and we're looking to assess the degree to which we're seeing wages normalize, which will in turn help services prices come down and border inflation. And on that front, we got wage data this week. So the employment cost index increased 4.3% relative to a year earlier. That's still above the targeted 3.5% pace that's compatible with 2% inflation. So more progress to be made there. So you were just talking a little bit about inflation, and I want to come to you with a question about that. I know that you and your team have done some analysis to see to what extent inflation has been driven by either companies expanding profits versus passing on higher labor costs. What did you find in your research? Yep, indeed, we did look at that because it's really important to decipher the drivers of inflation in order to better understand the appropriate policy prescriptions. And broadly speaking, there's three key drivers of inflation. The first is higher labor costs, which firms can pass on to consumers, assuming no rise in productivity, that is. The second is firms taking advantage of their competitive position and raising profits by raising prices rather than by raising sales. And the third is energy. And we found that in the US, labor costs are the key driver. Hence, the labor market rebalancing mentioned earlier is key to alleviating inflation. In the UK and in the euro area, to date, higher prices largely reflect firm behavior. And so the rise from higher labor costs may still be in the pipeline and therefore may take longer to unwind. But what's important to recognize is that the supply issues caused by the pandemic, which monetary policy can't really correct, those appear to largely be behind us. And now what we're focused on is how long policy needs to stay restrictive to reduce the excess inflation that we see today and to reduce the risk of a wage price spiral. We're coming off a large number of recent corporate earnings filings. What has the latest round shown you? Yeah, so look, we're looking at earnings through the lens of a credit investor. And so we're focused on the ability of companies to be able to repay debt. That's a bit different to the focus on growth for equity investors. And from that standpoint, Q3 earnings results received so far Look, just fine. Earnings growth is improving following several quarters of moderation. Profitability looks good, and that's driven in part by companies raising prices, which actually links back to my earlier comments on firm-led inflation. And, and higher rates have not yet fed through to higher interest costs because many companies locked in low rates before this hiking cycle began. We are starting to see that higher rates are impacting the costs associated with inventories, and they are influencing new investment plans. And then I'd also emphasize that there is divergence by region, by sector, and by company credit ratings. So we're still in the early phase of high yield company earnings releases, but of the companies that reported so far, a good picture for the third quarter contrasts with a downbeat outlook. Then by region, US companies are outpacing European peers, that reflects the divergence that we see in growth backdrops on either side of the Atlantic. And then by sector, so companies in the industrials and luxury goods sectors are also downbeat on the outlook and they've been citing weaker demand prospects from China. But in many regards, this increased dispersion is expected and it is very much welcomed 
because it creates more opportunities for active investors. Last question of the interview here. What's going to be on your mind for next week? So next week, we're going to be tracking disinflation, growth and earnings. On the disinflation front, we get Japanese wage data and European inflation expectations surveys. On the growth side, we get monthly UK GDP data. And then, of course, we're going to be passing through more company earnings results for the third quarter. Gapreet, thank you so much. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Markets. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Grobart. Thanks so much for listening. The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied or published without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each brand mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this program. Our theme music was composed by Soundboard.